All right, we begin today uh, session seven of the leaven of liturgy. We've gotten our way all the way to the homily and the offertory. The offertory is a, a, I won't say commonly misunderstood, but the offertory is oftentimes referred to or thought of as the music. This is kind of a, a, a misnomer. The, the offertory anthem or the offertory uh, element, the musical element, is part of the offertory. The offertory is a larger part of the liturgy, and it has more to do with offering, I suppose, and not just uh, a financial offering, but, but uh, offering of ourselves, our souls, our bodies, our, our goods, everything, and our confession, actually, all in that same portion, and our prayers... So we'll, we'll cover the homily and a large portion of the offertory up to the end of the prayer for the whole state of Christ Church today as soon as we get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who hath committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, you recall we've gotten to the end of the creed at our last course, at our last uh, session. And as we begin today, we're going to move to the sermon. But first, an announcement. That is, the prayer book instructs clergy to follow the creed with the notices or announcements. So it's actually not something just sort of thrown into the middle. The rubric says, Then shall be declared unto the people what holy days or fasting days are in the week following to be observed. And if occasion be, shall notice be given of the communion. For instance, you know, we're having an All Saints service at Tuesday night at 7 p.m., don't forget. Uh, And of the bands of matrimony at, at times. And of other matters to be published. Other matters to be published equal... You know, the toilet in the middle bathroom isn't working, and uh, thanks for so-and-so for making pumpkin pie today, and those are the other notices. So announcements are actually a part of the liturgy, and you can kind of tell by those announcements that it's right at the seam between the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the sacrament. It's right in there. Uh, The announcements are given. Then followeth, Seth the rubric, then followeth the sermon. Um, the sermon. The words sermon and homily are used sort of interchangeably in our language, and, and I would say homily is more often used in an Anglican service or a Roman Catholic service, homily. Uh, and there is, a, there is a slight difference, uh, I suppose, as language evolves, you could say there's less of a difference. Sometimes homily means short, sermon means long, but technically homily uh, comes from homilia. It means conversation. And it's typically a commentary related to the scriptures that were just read. Uh, a homily will typically not be a topical thing, but it'll be expository. In other words, the, the clergyman will exposit on the scripture that was just read. You won't hear, you shouldn't hear in a homily, a priest get up and say... Um, there's an election coming up, everyone, and uh, I want to urge you to vote. And, and uh, in fact, the way you vote, I'll tell you how to do today. That's not a homily. That's not even really a sermon. Um, a homily has to do with the, the passages that were just read. Uh, a sermon, meaning speech, is a discourse on religion or morals, often according to the speaker's choice, 
which is oftentimes on the scriptures just read, but oftentimes also what we call topical. In other words, uh, the pastor has figured out what he wants to talk about today, and he went through the Bible to find verses that will support what he wants to say, which sometimes we uh, raise an eyebrow at. But anyway, a topical sermon is something like, you know, uh, how to get out of debt in 40 days or how to have a better relationship with your boss. Um, having trouble in your marriage, this sermon is for you. That's a topical sermon. We, we've chosen the topic. We threw some Bible verses at it. But an expository sermon says, uh, oftentimes I'll say, turn to your Bibles with me, you know, uh, or turn your Bibles with me to such such a page. But for our, for our type of service, it's almost exclusively the scriptures that were just read. Uh, and it's usually a homily, a little bit shorter, because we've got a lot of liturgy to get through. Um, people often say, I enjoyed the message today, Pastor or Father. Um, a homily or sermon exists on a spectrum between several categories. And you'll maybe never thought about it this way, but uh, you'll see here in a second. Like I just explained to you, a sermon may be expository or topical. Sometimes people are very relieved after having spent years under some, uh, someone who preached topically to finally have expository preaching. It's finally just on the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? What are they about? Rather than um, the, the political climate of the day or finger-wagging about, about a particular topic or something like that. People like to hear, oftentimes, expository preaching. And it's harder for a pastor to go astray if he just sticks to what's in the Bible. <laughs> it's possible still to go astray. But uh, two other types of sermons you'll hear, an extemporaneous sermon or a text. Um, uh, after... Big Ten, actually, actually, after the uh, great revivals of England and the U.S., the extemporaneous sermon became highly valued in, in Western culture. That was thought to be that the Holy Spirit was present because he was, it was coming right off the top of his head. He was just saying whatever came to mind. He knew sort of what he was going to say, but he came out and he just, you know, the Holy Spirit led him and he said, you know, whatever the Holy Spirit led him to say extemporaneous, and that was more highly valued because it was thought that the Holy Spirit was, was at work. The other manner of preaching is with a text. Um, sometimes this is looked uh, down upon, except the reason we have St. Chrysostom's sermons and the reason we have St. Augustine's sermons, and actually for about three-quarters of the history of the church, they were preaching from a text. And when someone had no skill at preaching, they would give him a sermon from the book of homilies and say, just read this, because we know you'll screw it up. So just read this. You can't go too far um, from, from uh, you can't wander too far when you, when you preach from a text as extemporaneously. But if the, if the pastor himself composed the text, you know, um, there, there, I, I find there to be more value to a sermon that is written <clears throat> You've heard that expression, um, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. Uh, that was one of our presidents that said that. Um, I find that extemporaneous sermon times are, are often longer because there's a, more of a sense that you've got to fill this in, or there's less there because it's not as compressed as it could have been. Um, 
like a poem is, is compressed meaning into a short, and you can't just say whatever you want with a poem. It has to be these words, because these are the compressed meaning that I meant to say. Shorter sermon with a text uh, gets my thumbs up. <laughs> but I, that's my preference anyway. You'll also hear uh, either a series or a preaching from the lectionary. We talked about this a little bit last time. Um, depending on how the lectionary goes, you might get a sermon series anyway. The Ten Sermons on the Attributes of God, or something like that. Uh, not knocking it, it's a little bit topical. Uh, sometimes a sermon series will walk through a book of the Bible. Uh, it's called Lectio Continua, and that's fine too. Um, last week we talked about the pros and cons of either. But uh, you'll also hear, and you, this is a... I'll, I'll give you a, a distinction here that I'm drawing... Sometimes you'll hear a sermon that's a salvation gospel presentation aimed at people that have just set foot in the church for the first time. Or you'll hear a discipleship message. People that uh, ought to know all of this by now, they've, they've, they're moving from the milk to the meat of the Christian faith. They need to be fed too. You can't keep starting over at every sermon. Um, now, Billy Graham... Uh, is not your typical pastor because he's preaching that same uh, compelling and powerful entry-level sermon every time he's out to speak, right? He's also not the pastor of a local church trying to shepherd these people to stage four of the Christian life. He's, it's a start-over message. We're, we're starting from uh, you're in your sin, you're lost, and uh, and turn to Christ. Fine message, but you can't hear that every Sunday and expect to grow, in my opinion, unless you want to start over every Sunday. Um, but uh, speaking of the sermon itself, interestingly, the prayer book never speaks of sermons except in connection with Holy Communion, the two together, word and sacrament together. The Holy Communion has always been, since apostolic times, the regular and normative assembly for corporate worship by all the faithful of God on every Sunday and holy day, in obedience to our Lord's institution of the rite and his command to his disciples to repeat it. In other words, um, the command was not that we gather together to hear a sermon. The command that was we gather together to do this in remembrance of me, that was the command. And the sermon is always associated with the obedience to that command. Take it for what it's worth. Uh, that is definitely part of the prayer book ethos. Is that? Um, well, I'll have another little thing here in a second. But the, that that quote from Massey Shepherd continues, and this is powerful. I think you should hear this. Both in word and in deed, the Holy Communion is the proclamation of the eternal life-giving Word of God revealed to us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Sometimes you'll go to a Eucharistic liturgical sermon where you receive Holy Communion and the sermon wasn't so hot. And you say to yourself, well, I really prefer to go to a a church that has better sermons. You did hear a sermon. You heard the best sermon ever preached, which was the Holy Communion itself. A true proclamation of the eternal life-giving Word of God revealed to us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that the, 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 the priest is off the hook and can just preach whatever he wants now. Uh, because, and some, some churches, oftentimes, they even eliminate the homily from smaller services. 
That's not my preference. But if you go to a service where they keep eliminating the sermon, it's not the end of the world. You are receiving the word. Uh, in the liturgy itself, you're being preached to. But um, you're actually receiving the word of God, too, in a more literal sacramental sense. If you go to a, a church where they've eliminated the, the homily for a day or two, it's not the end of the world. It's not great, but you're receiving the word. Uh, a good homily is a nice thing to have, but if you're coming just to hear the sermon, well, at least you're here. <laughs> that's, I would say that's the wrong reason to come, but at least you're here. I'm glad you're here. Uh, if you like the sermon, great. If you don't like the sermon, I'm sorry. Um, but the reason we're here is not the sermon. The sermon is a wonderful thing, a helpful thing. Um, nevertheless, any, any questions or thoughts about the homily or the sermon? Yes, Jack. That was a particularly sweet photo of Bishop David. Hmm. This is at one of our churches in Ecuador. And I took that picture. Just so you know, what I was trying to get to was, was the notion that these people have come... They speak Quechua, he speaks English. When he preaches, they have to translate it first to Spanish, then to Quechua. Do you think the people were moved by the sermon? Maybe. But when they came forward for a blessing and the bishop touched them, they hadn't seen a bishop ever in this church. That was the moment. And it wasn't that it, wasn't that it was Bishop David. It was that it was Christ had actually come to their village and reached out and touched them. And Okay, I'll give you a quick one. We don't have time, but I'll tell you anyway. Uh, at the very beginning, uh, you know, some little ones came up for a blessing. And the, the, there was a, uh, something was lost in translation. They didn't realize this wasn't for everyone. And soon enough, they were crowding forward for a blessing to be touched by the bishop. And and they were calling people from the community out. Everyone wanted to be touched, and they were holding their children up to be touched and be blessed. And people were coming through the line twice to be touched again. And we, Bishop David and I, looked at each other like, "What are you going to do?" <laughs> so it just went on and on until it stopped. And we said, "Okay, okay, okay, okay. We got, a, we got like a whole bunch of liturgy to get through." My point is, the sermon is great, but you come to the church to be fed by God and to be touched by God and to meet with God Himself. Not to learn something and go somewhere else to meet God. You meet God here. Anyway, there's a sermon right there. Now, the next, the next portion. Uh, the offertory. Sometimes we refer to whatever the musician plays as the offertory. Actually, the offertory consists of three things. Uh, bringing oblations of bread and wine along with the alms to the altar. So these things are being offered. Um, also, a prayer of commendation of the alms and oblations and a prayer for the whole state of Christ's church as part of the offertory, technically. Okay? We're offering our prayers on behalf of the whole state of Christ's church. And also, we're repenting of our sins. We're offering ourselves and we're asking for forgiveness so that by the end of this, we've offered... Well, there's more here. By the end of this, we will have offered our, uh, the work of our hands... We will have offered the fruit of our labor. We will have offered our prayers for others. And we will have offered ourselves, our souls, and our bodies. And there's, after that, there's not much left to offer. That's the offertory. And the, the organ oft, oftentimes plays music during this. <laughs> so we call it the offertory. But uh, 
Before the, bir- the first Book of Common Prayer, um, there were, you, you realize there are sentences that we say. Uh, the offertory sentence would thematically match. Now, these are the sentences that you will find on page 72 and 73 of the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, before the BCP, the offertory sentence would thematically match the introit. Remember the minor propers? And thus the theme for the day. So the offertory sentence wouldn't simply be, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is the heaven and the earth. It would actually match precisely the day. Um, these were replaced with verses referring specifically to alms, later broadened to include other themes. So uh, Thomas Cranmer would, would include, instead of an offertory <laughs> sentence that had to do with the, litur- or the uh, theological theme for the day, he put in, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now that has a lot to do with the offering that's about to be offered. But the thing that you lost was the thematic connection with the liturgical season or the day. So over time, more sentences were added to that from 1549 onwards. And and our missiles actually give you a chance to return to the original offertory sentence that matches the introit and the other parts of the service. We haven't done that at St. George. What we typically hear is we say or sing, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness, as I just said, uh, before the, the, the plates go out and as I'm preparing the altar. And then afterwards, at the early service, I'll say, All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee, right there out of the sentences. Or we sing the doxology. Um, Praise God from whom all blessings flow, including the ones that we've just offered, and including the ones that we're offering of ourselves, the doxology. Those offertory sentences are what comes next. And like I said about the music, during the preparation of the altar, this is going on during the offering, uh, one of two things will happen. The organist will play an offertory, or... The choir will sing an offertory anthem. Probably we should call the the organist part, we should probably call that an anthem too, or we should call it the the offertory piece, or or something like that, because it gets confused that this is the offertory. Actually, this is the music being played during the offertory. Anyhow, it really is not a big deal as long as you're participating in every element of the offertory. These are not the offertory. They are musical accompaniment for offertory, for the offering of ourselves, our souls, our bodies. That's the real offertory. But when we offer, we offer the bread, we offer the wine, and we offer the alms. The bread and the wine used to be, um, used to carry only a slightly different significance. In the early church, it was the custom of each communicant to bring bread and wine, and alms, him or herself. Each were costly products of actual labor, not easily spared. So the bread that was consecrated was the bread that this fellow went out and planted the seed, and watered the seed, and it grew into heads of grain, and he harvested the grain, and he ground the grain, and his wife or whoever made it into bread, and they brought that bread. So it wasn't just bread or hosts. It was the actual product of their labor and their uh, economic um, produce, I guess you could say. The wine also, you know all the labor that goes into producing wine. 
um, imagine that you were the one that produced the wine, um, when you contribute that, it's really special. You ever met somebody who made, made their own wine? That pride in this wine, you got to try this. I have worked like really hard at this. So could you imagine if you also owned the vineyard, how special that would be to offer this bottle of wine? That's essentially what, uh, what, the, what happened in the early church. Of course, we've moved from such an agrarian culture. And essentially, all of our labor now produces is money, usually. Nothing wrong with that. It just represents the same thing. Um, that's our, our uh, alms. Not easily spared. This element of the offertory was meant to imitate Christ's costly offering of himself. Not easily spared. The Garden of Gethsemane, you get the sense how not easily spared this offering was. Um, if there's any other way, if you could let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done, that's the costly giving of self that is repeated or imitated in the, in the liturgy during the offertory and the offering. Um, in the Philippines, I didn't have a good picture of it. I showed, last time I taught something like this, I showed you how in the Philippines... When it comes time to collect the offering, they didn't have, well, they had some money, but not truly. So they oftentimes would have this big procession of bringing forth mangoes and cake and carrots. And so by the time it was the, we were celebrating the Eucharist, the altar was covered with oranges and mangoes. And because this is the offering of the people, this is what they could spare, um, it, it represented to them their, their alms in that way. But uh, the bread and wine are brought to the altar as an oblation now. Um, and we at the altar, the acolyte and myself, or if there's no acolyte, just myself or whoever the celebrant is, the wine is mixed with some water. Where does this tradition come from? Uh, first of all, is by custom, um, which is to say that in the early not only the early church, but in, in the first century, it was customary to always mix a little bit of water with your wine at anything. You know, dinner, breakfast. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Anytime you drank a little wine, you'd mix a little bit of water. But at first it was by custom, but the church fathers and, and others started to see a theological significance associated with this that, that, uh, uh, that went a bunch of different directions, all pretty neat. First of all, water and blood from Jesus' side. Isn't that interesting? That when the spear goes into his side, out come water and blood. And so the mixture of the the mingling of the water and the blood sometimes signifies this. It also has been uh, thought to signify the two natures, the divinity being the, the wine, the humanity being the water. Also sometimes spoken of as a union of Christ and the church. Christ is the wine, the church is the water. Uh, they're mingled together one way or the other uh, and then covered with a pall. That little card is called a pall. You also notice that in a funeral, a casket is covered with a pall. Um, and so that pall, in my liturgical mind, uh, represents the fact that these elements have not been consecrated yet. And here they are in Christ. Uh, body and blood are still separate. When a human being's body and blood are separated, 
that person is dead. <laughs> okay. Um, so on the altar currently we have wine and bread covered with a pall. At that state, the altar is ready uh, to begin, and the offering comes forward. Uh, sometimes at the end of the early service, we'll say, All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. Alms are brought to the altar, an actual return of financial blessing to God who gave them to us. All things come of thee, O Lord, of thine own have we given thee. It's a, a good thing to remember as you're giving. Uh, it's not an investment. In other words, we're not looking for a return on investment. What do they call that? ROI? <laughs> uh, offerings do not turn the worshipers into shareholders. Where now that I've contributed, I will uh, watch to see how this money uh, serves us. And, and uh, the greater amount that I give, the greater influence I should have. That's a business. That's not what's happening here. Um, those who give more should be treated the same as those who give little. Um, and if you want a scriptural reference for that, you can easily think of the widow's might. Uh, Christ says of this one who gave so much to her, but was less than everyone else, that she gave more than the others. And still she didn't have influence in the church. <laughs> so, because she didn't give to have influence. Uh, the tithe or the offering is an act of faith. It's an act of obedience. And it's act, an act of worship. It's part of the offertory. We're offering ourselves, our souls, and our bodies in an act of worship. If we met... Uh, well, anyway, I think, I think you got it. Um, that's the offering which is not the entirety of the offertory. That's a portion of it. But uh, the offertory continues in our liturgy with the prayer for the whole state of Christ's church. But any questions so far on what we've got, uh, we've covered? Bob. I just have a comment. All these years, I believe the water went in with the wine so it would cut the alcohol. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's good. I learned something today. No, it's... Uh, it's it started out as just the custom. First century, y'all, you never drink wine right out of the wineskin. You always put a little bit of water into it. And then the church said, wait a second. When he was pierced with his side, out came water and blood. And then said, wait a second, there's two natures. Wait a second, the church and Christ. And then, it, you know, we just said, okay, stop, 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 stop. We'll, we'll keep doing it. But if you go to a church where they don't mingle the, the, the wine with the, with the chalice, it, it's... It's not an invalid sacrament or something like that. It's meant to enhance this theological significance of what's going on here. Well, that was great to know for me. Very good. Very good. So prayer. Anybody else? Oh, uh, yes. Ethan. That actually does. Um, I, don't know, uh, I don't know much about the, uh, the rest of the ancient Mediterranean cultures, right. but insofar as uh, at least uh, Greek sort of culture right. generally, Roman culture generally were, were concerned, uh, the Greeks actually, I don't know the alcohol percentages or anything, right. they made wine that was ridiculously strong, Very strong. And you did not want to drink that unmixed. <laughs> right. So part, part of what made, uh, for them, part of what made other cultures, um, take the Macedonians and Alexander the Great, for example, part of what made other cultures barbaric uh, was not only language and customs and whatever, but you drink your wine without mixing it what in the world. Huh. So that actually, there was actually heavy practical significance. Um, I don't know about I don't know it's about uh, uh, the, the 
Right. And when we get wine out of a bottle, it's almost exactly the same alcohol content no matter what. That's because it's come from a, a factory where they, they manage that kind of thing. Yeah. Did you have something to... Uh, oh, okay. All right. All right, we move on to the prayer. For, thank you, Ethan. Prayer for the whole state of Christ Church. This is a, a not-so-great picture of the altar in Dominus Flav... I want to say Flavius or Flavus. Uh, oh, no, uh, Flavit. I'm terrible. There is, a, there is a little chapel on the side of the valley facing Jerusalem where a chapel was built where Jesus looked over Jerusalem and wept over Jerusalem. How many times I have wished to take you as, a hen, as chicks under my wings and just pull you all in under me, but you would not. Hmm, Dominus Flevit, I think is what it means, te- our Lord's tears. But um, that's a picture from uh, our trip to the Holy Land a few years back. But we pray for the whole state of Christ Church. A prayer for the whole state of Christ Church is not a prayer for the entire church, like whole as an entire, but a prayer for the health of the church, that the church would be healthy, whole, Okay. So, uh, yes, we're praying for a bunch of the church, but the idea is not to pray for the entire church. It's to pray for the health of the church, the whole church. Um, after the prayer of the intentions of the local church, I'll say something like, um, or any, any church, they'll say something like, we offer our prayers today, first of all, on behalf of, I'm trying to pick someone who's not currently on the list right now, Larry, Daryl, uh, Steve, and uh, we pray for the peaceful repose of, you know, Xavier, something like that. Um, after that, we pray that the church may live and grow in Christ's truth, unity, and love. Let us pray for the whole state of Christ's church, beseeching thee to inspire continually the universal church with the spirit of truth, unity, and concord. And grant that all those who do confess thy holy name may agree in the truth of thy holy word live in unity and godly love. The prayer goes on. Um, and I don't really need to go through this with you because you know it's page 74 to 75. We pray uh, that God would direct and dispose the hearts of all Christian rulers. Uh, the word Christian is put in there because uh, those rulers who are not Christian could not join in this prayer with us. Some people take Christian out and just pray for all rulers. I just stick to the liturgy. Um, But uh, we pray for justice, for the punishment of wickedness and vice, for the maintenance of true religion and virtue. And that's kind of the reason that the word Christian is in there, because a non-Christian leader would hardly maintain true religion and virtue. How could they retain true religion and virtue? They're not even part of the Christian faith. Um, So that's why... Those two go together. We pray for grace to all bishops and ministers, um, for the con- to the congregations committed to their charge, that by life and doctrine set forth a, uh, they would set forth thy true and lively word, rightly and duly administer the sacraments. You notice that it doesn't just say that they would preach good sermons. End of sentence. It says that they would preach good sermons, live it in their life, and administer the sacraments. That's the, the intent of the Book of Common Prayer. Um, grace for all thy people to hear and receive thy holy word in more than one sense, to receive it in the ear and to receive it on the tongue as well. 
the Word of God for all those who are in trouble and sorrow and need and sickness or any other adversity. The prayer for the whole state of Christ Church to that point is fairly self-explanatory. We turn in in the last little paragraph. uh, Oh, I should say this. I shouldn't say this, but I will. Uh, This whole idea of praying for the entirety of Christ Church comes from the synagogue. The synagogue had 18 prayers called the Amidah, in which they would pray for every element of uh, the people of God. It's just a little side note. Uh, They added another prayer when uh, Christians or Nazarenes uh, began to meet in their synagogues, not having a church of their own. The Christians would just come to synagogue as essentially Messianic Jews. We've found the Messiah and we're coming to synagogue. What else would we do? Uh, And they didn't like that. So they added another prayer. May the Nazarenes and the sectarians perish as in a moment. And they would watch to see who didn't pray that prayer. Who didn't join in in that prayer. So it was a way of catching the Christians in the synagogue and booting them from the synagogue. Anyway, that's, uh, that prayer is called the Birkat HaMinim. Um, it's blessing 12 of now 19 prayers in the Amidah. It used to be 18. Christians came along. They added one for us. <laughs> it's a prayer for the heretics, which if uh, a Christian is definitely a Jewish heretic then, I guess. But um, finally, the, the prayer for the whole state of Christ Church it, uh, includes a prayer for the departed. Uh, and, and we also bless thy holy name for all thy servants departed this life in thy faith and fear, beseeching thee to grant them continual growth in thy love and service. Okay? Uh, that is the petition. Continual growth in thy love and service. And you realize that it does not say continual growth out of hell, through purgatory, and into heaven. That's not what it says. We say we pray for those... Uh, Departed this life in thy faith and fear, beseeching thee to grant them continual growth in thy love and service. In 1549, the very first Book of Common Prayer, those prayers and that petition were retained from the Serum and from the medieval uh, church. But under pressure in 1552, those prayers and petitions, as you might guess, were removed. You remember the story all along. In 1552, a whole bunch of stuff was removed. And ever since then, the Anglican Church has been working to put back in things that were taken out in 1552. Those prayers and petitions especially uh, were removed in 1637 in the Scottish Prayer Book. The prayer returned, but not the petition. So the acknowledgement of the faithful departed, but not a petition that, for their continual growth. Um, in 1662... The English prayer book, those prayers remained. And in 1928, the Book of Common Prayer we have here, the prayers remain and the petition returned. So in 1928, we're back to 1549, back to the Serum and the, the medieval, medieval practice. And you're going to ask this question, or some will, where's that in the Bible? Okay, very good. Good question. <laughs> where's that in the Bible? There are only a few vague references in the Bible and nothing suggesting that our works or prayers may ease eternal punishment or something like that. Um, And so that is not what is prayed for. 
But the, are, the, are the vague references enough, the suggestions that, that uh, a prayer might even be uh, worth offering? Uh, tradition strongly suggests the practice, first of all, uh, when Christians in the first century worshipped in the catacombs, they're worshipping right there and using the catacombs as the altar. Um, written on the walls in those places of worship were uh, prayers wishing peace, light, refreshment, life, eternal life, union with God, union with Christ, and with the angels and saints uh, as early as 71 AD. Those words written in Latin on the walls and ceilings of the catacombs suggest at least uh, prayers of acclamation for those who had uh, perished in, 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 in that very place in those catacombs. Um, we look at the early liturgies of the church. This is the liturgy of St. James, where the prayer is offered. We commemorate all the faithful dead who have died in the true faith. We ask, we entreat, we pray Christ our God, who took their souls and spirits to himself, that by his many compassions, he will make them worthy of the pardon of their faults and remission of their sins. It's a Syriac liturgy of St. James. You say, well, that's not the Bible. That's true. Uh, Prayers for the departed. We should also note in our, uh, if anyone has a strident resistance to this or to All Souls Day, which is coming up on Wednesday, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Ambrose, Chrysostom, and others assume the practice and refer to it in writing. And St. Augustine writes this, the universal church observes this law handed down from the fathers that prayers should be offered for those who have died, not just those who have died, but those who have died in communion of the body and blood of Christ when they are commemorated in their proper place at the sacrifice. And what he means by that is in the Eucharist, during the Eucharistic liturgy. So... um, At the Reformation, uh, there was a practice that needed to be reformed because this prayer for the dead had become something weird. And so because it had become something weird, they decided on the one hand to just get rid of it all together and never use this ever again, banish it from all liturgy, hence 1549 versus 1552. 1549 was too Catholic. In the 1552, they said, let's get rid of all of it. And it was much more like the Continental Reformation. Let's throw everything out. If it looks, smells, tastes, or reminds us of of the Roman church, it's gone. When you're throwing that out, you are throwing out the church fathers and the tradition of the ancient church. So pause, at least pause for a moment. And this is what the Anglican Church typically does, finds a middle way between an extreme on the one hand and an extreme on the other. We're actually not praying you out of purgatory or out of uh, hell, but we're also not throwing out this ancient practice of the church. Um, This is a good point to end on, I think. To what extent our prayers for them may help and assist them is a mystery we cannot fully understand. But of this we may be certain, death does not divide the fellowship of Christ's beloved from any way of worship or service one with another. If there's any faith, any religious faith in this world that believes in the continuation of the life of the soul, it's the Christian faith. And as St. Paul says about his own death, he's not worried about it, not concerned. 
because to die is to be with Christ. If to die and to be with Christ meant to be utterly blindfolded and have your ears plugged or to be completely comatose sleep until the final resurrection, he didn't say anything about that. He said, I'll be closer with Christ. If Christ is currently concerned with us, why wouldn't someone close to Christ be concerned too? All these things um, are not required in a sense because the, uh, uh, you're not going to turn to chapter and verse somewhere and find your, your, your proof text. But that's not really how the Anglican Church deals with theology. We deal with Scripture first, but not Scripture alone. It's not a sola scriptura. It's a prima scriptura. Because the tradition of the church is highly valued also. If the tradition of the church contradicts the the Scripture, the tradition's out. But if the tradition doesn't contradict the Scripture, it enhances it. And especially if it's the ancient tradition of the church... We're very, very careful to throw something out. And that's why it exists in our liturgy and in our practice. And we have no time for questions, but any questions? <laughs> Sometimes that can be very uh, a controversial point, but, but here we are. Any uh, thoughts on that? Going once, going twice, sold. All right, we'll, we'll, God bless you. Next, next week is morning prayer. So we'll be back the week after that.